We're just about the end of Romans. Can you believe it? Paul's most theologically rich epistle, and we've got this Sunday and next Sunday, and we have made it all the way through Romans. And many of you have completed the course and not missed a single sermon. If you have missed one, I would encourage you to go back on our webpage and catch that sermon so you will be fully familiar with Paul's rhetorical flow in this letter to the church at Rome. Last week, we noticed some tension in the church at Rome. Everybody was judging his neighbor and focusing on his neighbor's faults and foibles. Most likely, it was the Gentile believers that were offending the Jewish scruples. Certain Jews, unsure about whether the meat in the meat market might have been sacrificed to one of the idols in the pagan temple, had simply become vegetarians just to play it safe. And other Jews, on the contrary, and Gentiles, declare that God was the owner of every herd on every hill, so as neither here nor there, concerning the when, where, and how the meat had been butchered, and they ate meat with a clear conscience. Likewise, certain Jews were observing the Jewish festivals, the holy days that crowded the Jewish calendar, while others treated every day exactly the same. So here Paul admonishes us, admonishes them to quit making selfish choices, but rather, 14, 19, pursue the things which make for peace and building up the body of Christ, building up one another. Therefore, stop judging your brother and build up the church. Have you ever had the feeling that maybe, just maybe, perhaps sometimes we Christians kind of major on the minor. Now, I'm, I've got a Presbyterian illustration. It could certainly be Baptist or Methodist or anybody else, but this was the most absurd illustration I could find. A little town in Centerville, Georgia, population of 5,000 people. It all started with one Presbyterian church in Centerville, Georgia. They had an internal conflict in 1911 over whether they should take up the offering before the sermon or all after the sermon. A big fight. Do we take up the offering before the sermon or after the sermon? That's easy. Take it up both times if there's an argument. That would, that would solve it, but, but they wouldn't do that. So they decided that uh, they were going to have a split off, and so... The church that split off became the Centerville Reformed Presbyterian Church, making two Presbyterian churches in Centerville, Georgia. Well, just four years later, they got in a fight over whether or not they should have flowers in the sanctuary or not. And so they had another split, and the new church was the Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville. A total of seven more splits happened between 1915 and 1929 over various issues. By 1931, the latest church was named the Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. More church splits occurred between 1931 and 1975 over conservative and liberal bifurcation within the denomination. Since 1975, a 
a few more church splits that even happened yet over various issues that brought the total number of Presbyterian churches to 48 in Centerville, Georgia. That's apparently a record. The last split was over whether or not it was a violation on the Sabbath day to check your email on your personal computer. You all will be joining that church, wouldn't you? There you go. The church split over that issue, and some folks left the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th, Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church and renamed the new church, you ready? The Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminsterian Sabbatarian Regulative Credo Communionist Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. Wow, I'm not making this up, folks. The teaching elder, Paul Davis, and the, they just abbreviate the name of their church. They abbreviate it to the PTRCWSRCCAPCC, was quoted as saying, I think we finally got it right now. We have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. He said, besides, we're up to six people on Sundays now. Wow. We get a good chuckle out of that story that just keeps splitting till you have 48 Presbyterian churches in a town of, of 5,000 people. But the reality is, it represents what happens when God's people, when the body of Christ is not in harmony together. In chapter 15, especially the early section, it flows directly from chapter 14. Now, you'll remember that the chapter and versification of Paul's letters or any scripture is it's a, a later event. When Paul writes a letter, he doesn't put a big chapter 15, verse 1. Someone did that later so we'd be able to reference the same spot when we turn to the passage. And so the break between chapter 14 and chapter 15 is artificial. It's, it's not in Paul's original letter. And so let's pick up in chapter 15, having looked at chapter 14, and you'll feel the flow continue. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but that it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. First of all, verse 2, please your neighbor. Please your neighbor. Verse 2, we are called upon by Paul to put our neighbor ahead of ourselves. When Paul says, please your neighbor, he's saying something like this, love limits your liberty. There are some things that you could do that you shouldn't do because it might offend your brother. Love limits your liberty. And then in verse 3, he gives us the ultimate example of the Christ. Not even Christ did everything that Christ wanted to do. Or the Messiah didn't please himself, verse 3. But rather, he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pain to the cross. The purpose behind pleasing our neighbor is to act for his good, for her edification, 
rather than do anything that might fracture her faith. The long-term goal, however, is not to just keep pleasing the weak, not to keep them happy at all costs, but rather to urge the weak to grow along in their own faith. And even the weak, too, must not seek to just simply please themselves, but rather they are to give grace to those who see things differently than they. It's a principle of egalitarian reciprocity. Egalitarian reciprocity. I should do what is best for you and the development of your faith, and you should do for me what is best for me for the development of my faith. What a beautiful quotation, Psalm 69, 9 there in verse 3. On the cross, on the cross, Christ passively suffered his faith and bore the insults of the insolent and dying for those who are weak. God, whoever made this one who is an object of widespread scorn, the object of humanity's hope. The death of Christ brings forgiveness, which requires those of us who've been forgiven to start forgiving others. And those of us who receive reconciliation are to be busy in the business of reconciling. And rather than reproaching our brothers and sisters, we are to receive reproach. In fact, in 1 Peter 4, we are told that if we approach for the name of Christ, then indeed we are blessed for the Spirit of God and the Spirit of glory rest upon us. He reminds us in verse 4 that Scripture, which for Paul would be the Old Testament, provides encouragement and bolsters our endurance, which leads to our hope. What a beautiful phrase. The encouragement of Scriptures that we might have hope. Isn't that what you want today? Hope. A student was asked to summarize the gospel in the fewest possible words, and he said, In the Bible, it gets dark, and then it gets very, very dark, and then Jesus shows up. In the Bible, it gets dark, and then it gets very, very dark. And then Jesus shows up. Well, second thing, verses 6 through 13. Well, let's look at verse 6. Glorify God with one voice. Glorify God with one voice. Look at verse 6. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated there, one accord, is also translated some places together is used for the way God's people are to pray in Acts chapter 1. It is used for the way God's people break bread in Acts chapter 2. It is used for the way God's people share possessions in Acts chapter 4. Of all the words that ought to describe the people of God, that one word together is a word to describe God's church. We are to magnify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through our unanimity based upon our shared commitment to Christ. The church is to be like a choir that sings in great harmony. And glorifying God is what God intends for all creation to do. 
is God's cosmic intention to eradicate human divisions of Jews and Gentiles, of Greeks and barbarians, of wise and foolish, of strong and weak, so that all of creation and all of humanity would praise God with one voice of praise. You see, Christ's death unrolls the welcome mat for the ungodly including you and me. Only a church bathed in peace can authentically proclaim the message of God's peace to the world. Those who under sin, we've already been told in Romans chapter 3, 17, those under sin, the path of peace they have not known. But only as the church herself as at peace can she give the message of the arrival of the Prince of Peace. What happens next is a beautiful litany, a harmony of Old Testament quotations in verses 9 through 12. Well, we have Moses and we have the prophets and we have the Psalms teaching us about God's intention. Well, look there in Romans 15, 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God to conform the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now it takes us back all the way to the thematic verse of the book of Romans. We find the thesis statement of Romans back in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. This gospel, this story of Jesus is not something to be ashamed of, a Messiah that is crucified. That was a shameful story to some Jews. Messiah shouldn't be crucified like a criminal. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. Don't be ashamed of a crucified Messiah, for in that story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Messiah, we find the power of God for salvation first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Well, yes, he reminds us here in 15.8 that, in fact, Jesus was a Jew, but it has always been God's intent to include all humanity, including the Gentiles, the Greeks, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, Romans chapter 4. This series of citations come from the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm, and together all of Scripture sings that God had always intended for the Gentiles to be part of his people. Well, the first citation there in verse 9 comes from Psalm 1849. Listen to it. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing your name. The second citation, verse 10, comes from Deuteronomy. This is from Moses, Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And the third citation comes from verse 11. It's from Psalm 117. It directs all the nations to sing praises to God. Praise him, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples praise him. The fourth citation, verse 12, comes from Isaiah, a prophet again, 11, 1 and 10. There shall come the root of Jesse... And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. Listen to that carefully now. 
There shall come the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, the son of David, and he who arises. Is this an allusion to the resurrection? I think, in fact, it is. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse, one of the sons of David, one who follows from Abraham, will indeed be crucified and arise and become the Lord of the cosmos, including the hope of the Gentiles. You see, his universal lordship is because he is victor over death. Christ's rule does not lead the Gentiles to be subordinate to Israel, but rather to share in the hope and the salvation of Israel. Well, look at verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. One voice, one church, praising God. Today marks the one-year anniversary for COVID crisis in the city of Amarillo. One year today. If there could ever be an event that would splinter a large group of people of various political, theological, philosophical, and scientific views, it has certainly had its chance in the COVID crisis. And though we would not all agree about everything, in fact, you probably don't agree with yourself two months ago now today, do you? We have made it through this mess as one people with humility and grace and thoughtfulness. I do not know of a church where people have continued to serve as you have served in every way imaginable, even creating new avenues to serve people when the old avenues were closed. In these, the darkest of days and most trying of times, First Baptist Church of Amarillo has truly been one voice of praise. Paul tells us, hope enables believers to bear up under suffering. We have done that. Hope sees the good in others who might otherwise be categorized as hopeless. And as we experience the peace of God, we live peaceably with all and try to build up the body of Christ. During this last year, we have walked through families who have endured immeasurable suffering, isolation, fear, confusion. We have stood beside families at the graveside, those who've lost a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a brother, or a sister. I've watched our Bible study classes rise up and serve those among us who caught COVID, delivering meals, but most of all, delivering hope that the church cares and is still here. No, it is especially here in times of crisis. COVID came to your house and my house and God's house, but together 
through it all, we have been in this community the bearers of God's hope. There was not a single Sunday that the community of Amarillo couldn't tune in to the worship in this room with one voice of praise. In the Bible, it gets dark. And then it gets really, really dark. And then Jesus shows up. Here's a third thing Paul says. Preach the gospel. Verses 14 through 22. Preach the gospel. He begins to turn the topic about his missionary plans to reach the Gentiles and his future travel plans to Spain. Look at verse 20. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written... They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Quoting Isaiah 52. Paul has a sense of urgency. I don't want to come to Rome and start another church there. I want to take the gospel to Spain, where they've never heard, where the barbarians are who need the hope. I want to go on my way by you to Spain. Well, there's a, a fourth thing he says, verses 23 through 33. Share material blessings. Share material blessings. Look at verse 23. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I've first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when we have finished this and have put on my seal of their fruit of theirs, I will go on my way by you to Spain. Paul wants to take the gospel to Spain, what we might call this fourth missionary trip he has in his mind, to go where the gospel has not yet gone. And you will help me, he says, I'm going to go on my way by you. I need men to go with me. I need rations, supplies. I need translators. There's not a lot of Jews in Spain. He can't just start in the synagogue like he did everywhere else. I need a new plan to take the gospel to Spain. Look at verse 24. It's an interesting little translation. When I have enjoyed your company for a while. Uh, you ever had that feeling when company comes through? When I have enjoyed your company for a while. The, the Greek translation, let me give you a direct translation. If first, in some measure, I might have had my fill of you. If first, in some measure, I might have had my fill of you. I'm coming to you. I'm not going to stay. It's just like fish and company. Three days, they start stinking. I'm going to be there a little while, but I want you to send me on to Spain. I'm not coming to change what's going on there in Rome. Spain is a logical goal for the apostle to the Gentiles. He's indebted both to the Greeks and the barbarians, and, and Spain resisted the Greco-Roman culture in the first century, and they were described as barbarians, and Paul wants to take the gospel to Spain. 
Well, he has another surprise in verse 25. I'm going to go to Rome. Then I'm going to be sent by you to Spain. But first, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, I wish you could picture this map in your mind. Paul's in Corinth. He wants to go to Spain. He wants to go through Rome. But he says, first, I got to go to Jerusalem. That's not the way you would go. In fact, we were looking for flights to Colorado Springs from Amarillo, and you quickly learn you first got to go through Dallas. That's the, the wrong direction. You might say that Paul is going from Amarillo to Dumas, but he's going to go through Dallas to get there. You don't go through Dallas to get to Dumas from here. It's a long way off. Well, why is he going to Jerusalem? Why is he going the wrong direction? Verse 26. Paul is taking an offering from Macedonia and Achaia, and we learn elsewhere from Galatia and also from Ephesus or Asia. There are the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem, and they're facing a famine, and, well, Paul has collected this offering in Macedonia and in Corinth and in Ephesus and the churches in Galatia, and he's taking this offering, and he's really nervous about it because it's not the money, it's the meaning of the money. You see what's happening? The Jewish Christians are experiencing poverty. And you remember that the pillar apostles said to Paul, if you take the gospel of the Gentiles, do this one thing, remember the poor. And Paul was glad to do so. If Paul arrives with this Gentile money to Jewish believers in Jerusalem and they accept it, it's not that they've just accepted the help. If they accept the money from Macedonia and Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia, then they've accepted the believers there. You see that? If you take the money from those Gentile regions, then you've also accepted them into the family of faith. And Paul describes it this way. The Gentiles have shared in the spiritual wealth of Israel. And therefore, the Gentiles should share in material wealth now that the Jews are starving with a famine. For Paul, the whole future of the unity of the church lies in how this offering will be received. And he is nervous and you know the Jews there arrest him, we know from Acts, and he only makes it to Rome much later in chains. What's well, the last thing he says? Number five, pray with me, verses 30 and 31. He's nervous. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Paul is frightened. And we know that indeed the Jews arrest him there and put him in chains. And he makes it to Rome, but he makes it as a prisoner. So there you have it. One voice of praise. Jews sharing their spiritual riches with Gentiles. The Gentiles helping out the family of faith during the famine. The church emerging with all of this diversity being God's plan all along. Yes, Moses says it. Yes, the prophecy says it. Yes, the psalm says it. The Gentiles are to join God's people in praise. Please, your neighbor, glorify God with one voice. Preach the gospel. Share material blessings. And pray, pray with one another.
My wife, Lisa, was in the grocery store and noticed two little girls riding in a shopping cart. One was on the top level where they had the little place for the children's legs to stick through, and one was down in the shopping cart, down the basket. And Lisa was in the dairy section perusing the various yogurts when the little girl riding up in the top basket, well, she was just really outgoing, and she said, what's your name? And Lisa replied that her name was Lisa, and out of curse, he said, and what's your name? The little girl not only offered her name, but introduced a little sister down in the basket itself, and then the, the little grocery store evangelist got down to the real matter at heart. She said, what's your church? And Lisa replied, I go to First Baptist Church. Where do you go to church? The little girl shared the name of her church, but then she was trying to make sense out of this First Baptist Church and asked Lisa to explain that. And then the little girl probably didn't quite get it. And she said, oh, First Baptist Church. Well, I just go to the church that has all the people that I love. Well, I just go to the church that has all the people that I love. I do too. What about you? Let us pray. Oh God, a year later, and we are one voice of praise. Thank you for your grace during these days. Thank you for your hope. It gets really, really dark, and then Jesus shows up. We're grateful for his crucifixion and his resurrection. May we always hear be one voice of praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.